You guys have a seat. Awesome opportunity for us to worship this morning. It's so great to see a couple of our young men, um, although they're seven, eight years old, see them follow through a baptism this morning. I'm going to look forward to what God has in store for them. Hey, I, I want to pose a question this morning, and you can't, this is a question for those of you who are married, all right? Um, you can't take this question home and use it as an argument later on, all right? It's just for in the room. How many of you in your marriage, at some point, there's been a disagreement, we'll just keep it a disagreement, all right, with your spouse over directions to get somewhere? All right, Russ, all right, it's not that bad, all right? He's whistling, all right? You're in trouble, all right? There was one lady in the first service when I said, how many of you in your marriage have ever had an argument or discussion? I didn't even say what about, and her hand just went right up. I was like, well, she needs other help. We're not dealing with that this morning, all right? Uh, But in our marriage, all right, I'm one of those people who if I go somewhere one time, I fully expect my memory to get me back there every time. Anybody else in the room? I mean, I just expect my brain to get me there. And so most of the time that's accurate, most of the time. But when it's not accurate, when it takes me off a little bit, 23 years of marriage and my fantastic wife has learned the best thing to do is just leave me alone, right? The suggestion of, well, maybe you should look it up on your phone. I mean, just turn in my man card now, right? I mean, I know where I'm going. And even if I don't know where I'm going, I got to at least pretend that I know where I'm going so that I can keep carrying this thing on. And the worst thing that you could ever do if you are misdirected or you are not quite where you're supposed to be is to suggest to your spouse, maybe you should call and ask. Uh Uh-uh. No way am I going to call and ask for directions. That's the ultimate ego turn-in card. There's no way I'm going to ask. I'll figure it out because there's times in our lives where we're just simply unwilling to ask for help. We're simply unwilling to ask for help. Some of your students, you got finals coming up. Um, high school students, you got exams coming up. And some of you are good about this. Others of you will say, I'm not asking anybody for help. I'll figure it out. And heaven forbid, you got to go to a teacher and ask for help. I'm not going after class. I'm not going to go ask them if they can help me solve this problem. No way. I'm not doing it. Maybe there's some other things. Maybe this year it's Christmas time and some of you are doing your Christmas baking and you're cooking and you've got this recipe that somebody at church or work gave you and you're at home and you're in the kitchen and on the little recipe card it says a pinch of salt. Is that like a little pinch, big pinch? And you don't want to call them and ask. You just want to figure it out on your own. Maybe you're putting together and you're, you're helping out on Christmas Eve and you're putting together those wonderful toys that come in 4,000 pieces that are all strapped in as if they are a nuclear device attached to cardboard. You know what I'm talking about. They're hooked in there as if they are never to be removed and somehow you've got to put those things together and the last thing that you want to do is follow the directions. You just want to get it together. You don't want to look at it. And those are some humorous ways that some of us in life We just don't want to ask for help. We don't want to look at someone else and say, hey, can you help me out? Can you show me how to do this? Can you point me the right direction? We'd rather just keep wandering and searching and looking. And sadly, one of the most tangling ways that sin wraps us up is by our unwillingness to admit that we need help spiritually. We just don't want to admit 
We, we live in a culture, in a world that nobody wants to admit that they've sinned. Nobody wants to admit that what they've done is morally wrong. Everyone wants to say, hey, I, this is my way of handling. This is what I want to do, how I want to do this. I know what's best. Someone steps into your life on a serious issue and they come to you, someone that cares for you and loves you and they come to you and they say, you know, I've just noticed this in your life. And you go, I, I, don't, I don't need that. One of the greatest pitfalls is unwillingness is of, of sin's powerful damaging results is unwillingness to listen, unwillingness to admit that we need help unwillingness to admit that we need a savior unwillingness for us to look at our lives and look at our decisions and you could ask this of yourself tomorrow night on your own at the end of the day you look at yourself and say how have i sinned today that's not real high on your list of admitting because we don't want to admit our wrongdoing we don't want to admit where we've fallen short an unwillingness to admit. And what I want us to see from the Old Testament, we see in the Old Testament, the Israelites, God's chosen people, they were unwilling to admit their wrongs. They were unwilling to, to ask for that guidance in moments of their history. You turn the page in the New Testament, many of those who actually saw Christ and his miracles rejected that, the Jewish people. But what I want us to see as we look at this series to return the wonder is that Jesus Christ is a willing Savior for an unwilling people. Jesus Christ is a willing Savior for an unwilling people. Because here's what Jesus was going to do. He was going to, as we're about to read this morning, leave his place of splendor in all eternity, step into this broken and pain-filled world. He would take on human flesh, as we'll see in a few moments. He would endure birth in a stable he was willing to serve instead of being served. Jesus was willing to be mistreated. He was willing to be misunderstood. Jesus was willing to undergo rejection, injustice. He was going to preach a message for several years of his life that would cause him personal harm. Be mocked, endured physical torture. And we're going to see a willing Savior who is willing to live and willing to die so that we could have eternal life. Now this morning may not feel like a, quote, Christmas sermon. We're going to look at Luke 2 as we did last week. We're going to look at Luke 2 again next week. But we're also going to look at how the moments of the manger, how we begin to see those taught and how those begin to impact the writings of Paul and other New Testament writers of how it's a complete story from the manger to the cross. We're going to see Jesus as a willing Savior to an unwilling people. So if you've got your Bibles, if you turn to Luke chapter 2, um, there's several scriptures listed in your worship guide. If you want to try to keep up with me, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2, we'll be in Colossians Chapter 1 and 2, you can get all that as we're going on this morning. But Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, a story that is familiar to 99.9% .9 of us in this room, says these words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, 
to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now I want to let us get a little bit of awe and wonder this morning of this story. And so I want to do that this morning by giving a little bit of a history lesson. I'm not a massive history buff. Some of you guys are in the room, so I, I may you know, not give you quite enough. But I want you to see how important the first character listed in Luke chapter 2 is. Because see, we, we rush down, we, we get to Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus. But I want you to see why it's important for Luke to include in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, I'm going to ask a question, you guys can say it out loud, all right? Caesar Augustus was the great nephew to whom? Anybody? Julius Caesar. Were you in the first service? Just checking. No, I'm just kidding. All right. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. If you haven't heard of Julius Caesar, you may want to just recheck the history book, all right? Julius Caesar was a pretty significant person in history, was murdered. Before he was murdered, he had a great nephew by the name of Gaius Octavius. And Gaius Octavius was then adopted by Julius Caesar, almost in the role of a son. So when Julius Caesar was murdered, in his will, two-thirds of all of his wealth and two-thirds of his power were given to a 19-year-old guy by the name of Gaius Octavius. Now, this guy did not squander the wealth or the power. He began to spread the Roman Empire and make it truly an empire. And during that time, he went and had his name changed in accordance with his lineage now, and he became Caesar Augustus. It literally means the divine Caesar. This guy asked of Roman citizens and of those in leadership to worship him. That's the level that this guy had gotten to. So when you're reading along in Luke chapter 2 and you're just bebopping along, there came that, that day a decree was sent out from Caesar Augustus. You need to pause and realize this is a man of power, a man of history, a man who had at his control, people were worshiping him, people were coming, coming to him, and he orders a decree. When he orders a decree, the Roman government's going to do it. When he says a decree is going to take place, during this time period of this governor, guess what's going to happen? Rome is going to spread its wings a little bit further. They're going to tax the poor a little bit more. And what it would do to someone like Joseph, it would take him from a level of almost poverty to poverty, to people that would gather in villages such as Bethlehem that are mentioned here. It's a group of people, Jewish people. They didn't want the Roman people leading them. It was taxation without representation to its full force. All they wanted from the Jewish people, from Caesar Augustus, we just want your money. We don't want to give you anything in return for it. We don't want to oversee you in any way except to make sure that we get extra out of you. And so when Caesar Augustus, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, this was an order. And whether or not Mary and Joseph thought the idea was great, or whether or not they wanted to go back and see family in Bethlehem was not an issue. It was time for them to go. And so Joseph takes his betrothed pregnant wife. They leave one location and travel to another. So don't, don't clean this up, all right, church? Don't make this, you know, Mary's on a donkey and they're just riding along and everything's going great. Hey, everybody, I've got Jesus, you know, awesome. 
Realize they are traveling roads that are dangerous, that are filled with Roman guards, making sure they're going to the right place at the right time. And along the way, if we can get a little bit extra money out of those traveling, we'll take it from those poor Jewish people. This is what's happening with Mary and Joseph make this journey to Bethlehem. This is what's taking place. And here's what I love about this. I love that Luke did not just say in those days Mary and Joseph traveled back to Bethlehem. I love that he included the historical figure. So here's what it does. For those of you who like history, it takes the story of Scripture and it includes it also in historical documentation. Because now we can cross-reference. We can find out when Caesar Augustus ruled. We can find out when these decrees were given. We can find out this information. It's as if Luke, this doctor writer, is daring people to try to pull this story out of Scripture. I got details in here. This story is a part of history. This movement was taking place by a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus, the emperor, the divine Caesar. I love the irony here that this powerful political leader thinks he's in charge. Because see, here's what's happening. When he demands this decree from this group of people to go to their hometown, and part of that impact is Joseph moving back to Bethlehem, Caesar Augustus is making a decree. But understand, when he makes that decree... He is a part of a bigger plan that God is beginning to move. So the divine Caesar is making way for the divine God. You see that? This divine self-appointed leader is really making and paving the way for the divine God to be in Bethlehem to foretell and bring about all the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. And Caesar Augustus thinks he's just a man. A self-titled man is making way for the divine Son of God to be delivered in exactly the right time, exactly the right time, exactly as predicted. I don't know about you, that gives me a little awe and wonder of how history begins to place itself in the middle of this story that we have. But here's what I want us to see this morning. In Luke chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, it says, And while they were there, the time gave for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in, a, in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I want you to see at the manger, but this morning, I want us also to fast forward to the cross. I also want to fast forward to the teachings of Paul who reflected back on the life of Jesus. And I want us to see that here at the manger, is a Savior. Here in this moment, gave birth to a firstborn son and laid him in a manger. There in that manger, first of all, was a servant. Jesus willingly served. In a world that demands political leaders to be boisterous and loud and be conquest and conquerors, Jesus willingly served. He served in a, coming in a manger, born of flesh, Scripture tells us. But he also emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Verse 5 through 7 of Philippians 2. If you're new to us, you'll know that we're sort of familiar with Philippians in the fall. 
But Philippians 2, verse 5 through 7 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count himself, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a, what? Servant. And what was one definition of being a servant? Being born in the likeness of men. At the manger, this is what's taking place. A servant is being delivered for an unwilling, unexpected people. This and many other passages are pouring everything and leading us to this understanding that Jesus was a servant. The King James Version there, when it says emptied himself, it says made himself of no reputation. Just by his arrival, just by his coming to the earth, he was declaring to this world, I am a servant. I love listening occasionally to Alistair Begg, a pastor in Ohio, originally from Scotland, so even if you don't like his messages, you've got to love his accent. So I, I love listening to him. And, and he said this about this moment. Jesus did not approach being born into mankind by asking, what's in it for me or what do I get out of it? In coming to earth, he said, it doesn't matter. But Jesus, you're going to be laid in a manger. It doesn't matter. Jesus, you will have nowhere to lay your head. It doesn't matter. Jesus, you're going to be an outcast and a stranger. It doesn't matter. Jesus, they're going to nail you to a cross and your followers will all desert you. And Jesus says, that's okay. And he goes on to say, that's what it means to make himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. That is the picture that we see of Jesus in his birth in the manger. It's the picture we see of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the picture we see of Jesus Christ the night before he was betrayed, on the night he was betrayed, having the Lord's Supper, a meal that he should have been served by those around him, but instead he serves and cares for them. John 13, verse 3 through 5 says this, At the Lord's Supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Listen, he laid aside his outer garments taken a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now I'm a visual learner, but in my mind, I cannot disconnect from Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, from Jesus wrapped in a towel, serving his disciples 30 years later. It's who he is. It's why he came. It's why he had to come in this form, in this manger, in this way, during this time, under this leader of Caesar Augustus, in this moment, in this town, he was a servant. And he was on mission. He was on mission for a willing Savior, for him to become a willing Savior to an unwilling people, but he also became a sacrifice. Jesus willingly became a sacrifice. Philippians verse two, verse, chapter 2, verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Now again, we would define a, a leader or someone in great power as someone who may make a, a conquer a town. Caesar Augustus who takes area after area and they're proclaimed as a hero and they fight battles. Just as the manger was a sacrificial way to begin his life, the cross was a sacrificial way for him to begin giving new life. And I know this, you go, man, this, this isn't a feel-good Luke 2 sermon. Because when we look at it, it is a story that spans not just from Luke 2, but spans all of Scripture from creation to resurrection. It places all this in its place. And what we see is a servant Jesus. What we see is a sacrifice Jesus. In this image of suffering and pain, it gives us comfort. Listen to me. This, this thought that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2 goes on to say, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's happening in the manger. That's all taking place right there in the beginning in Luke chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Highlight it, circle it, and connect the dots to all of Scripture this morning. That in that moment, we see the picture of, the fast forward of a Savior who suffered, humbled himself as a sacrifice, even to the point of death on the cross. I love what Tim Keller says regarding the cross and the wonder of Christmas, putting those two together. He says, On the cross, we sufferers finally see, to our shock, that God now knows too what it is to lose a loved one. Let me say that again. On the cross, we sufferers finally see, to our shock, that God now too knows too what it is to lose a loved one. Early in his ministry, John stopped before theologically kind of going a different direction. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? You see, in this sacrifice, this gives us hope. In this sacrifice, we see a God that so loved us and experiences and, and hates suffering, that he's willing to come down and to place himself and get right in the middle of it. That's what's happening in Luke chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. That's what's happening as we read the gospel account of Matthew, of the birth of Jesus. That's what's transpiring. A servant and a sacrifice is being born to say, I have the hope for all eternity. I am the Savior for your sins. But he's also a reconciler. Jesus is a reconciler. Jesus willingly offered us reconciliation. Now, why is that important? Let's look at this in verse 19 and 20 of Colossians. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus, to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, 
We've got to attach the two. We've got to connect this this morning. If we really want a sense of awe and wonder of the story of the birth of Jesus, we cannot leave it incomplete on the timeline. We see where it comes in history with Caesar Augustus and the decree moving them to Bethlehem. And now we see as we go through and we see the writers after Jesus has been raised from the dead, after Jesus left the planet, they're writing to say, He made peace by the blood of his cross. He reconciled us. Now, after that first question this morning about directions, um, some of you in your marriage may need reconciliation this afternoon, okay? So some of you may go, I can't believe you raised your hand. I can't believe you said that we had that problem, all right? You know what reconciliation is. It's when a relationship is broken, and when someone or both of those people go to the, each other and they ask for forgiveness and there's genuine forgiveness offered and apologies are accepted and the relationship begins to mend and begin to be healed. But something broke that relationship. Something stepped in and you've been a part of a moment needing reconciliation. Reconciliation, according to Scripture, brings us back, Jesus brings us back into a relationship with God by His sacrifice on the cross. So understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And although you might be unwilling to accept that this morning, it doesn't change the fact that you have sinned and you have fallen short of the glory of God and you desperately need a relationship with a holy God and that comes through Jesus Christ. And it begins in Luke chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Can I just ask you not to do something this Christmas? Don't look at the manger this year And Luke, don't look at the manger and you're passing by and just go, oh, how cute, how sweet. Look at it with awe and wonder and say how incredible it is. The Savior of the world came. Caesar Augustus moved him around, born in Bethlehem, promised and foretold with awe and wonder Come to that moment and realize that moment begins your reconciliation to a holy God. That moment begins the opportunity for you through the death and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you to have an eternal relationship and reconciliation takes place. Scripture says, how? By peace, by the blood of Jesus Christ. goes on to say in verse 21, through 23 of Colossians, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present, listen to this, his death to, enables you to be presented to God holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 13 through 15 of Colossians also says this. You, you, who were dead in your trespasses and your uncircumcision of flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt 
And that record of debt had to be paid. And Scripture tells us that the only way to pay for those sins is by death. And so death came, but it came through Jesus. Continues, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That Jesus that conquered sin and death for all time is the same Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Let that this Christmas sink in. Let yourself attach Luke 2, verse 6 and 7 to Colossians chapter 2. Legal demands canceled, nailed to the cross, done. Disarm the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. And he triumphed over them all. That's the Savior that today has been born. And that is Christ the Lord. This is what we come to this Christmas season. This is for me what brings awe and wonder is that a willing Savior came for an unwilling people. In closing, let me read a couple of verses you might be familiar with. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. The Savior, the Messiah, who would later be nailed to the cross, wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Let's pray this morning.